Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. You know, people are always asking me how deep a submarine can dive. And the answer is all the way to the ocean floor. The trick is coming back up again. Question, what do you call a dog riding in a submarine? A subwoofer. Y'all, I have the guest for you today. Her deepness, Dr. Sylvia Earle. Sylvia is a marine biologist who has been deemed a hero for the planet and designated by the Library of Congress as a living legend. She has been a Nat Geo explorer since 1998, author of over a dozen books, and her TED Talk has over 3 million views. Sylvia led the first team of women living underwater, has thousands of research diving hours, and explored all over the world. On a personal note, she is one of my heroes. In today's episode, we chat about how Sylvia is a witness to the oceanic changes in her lifetime, why no child should be left dry, and how by looking in the mirror, we can save our oceans and our blue planet. Please enjoy. Dr. Sylvia Earle, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. It is a true honor to speak with you today. I'm pleased to be on board. (laughs) So I want to take it back to your beginnings. You had wonderful experiences uh, just starting out in your career. You did an internship at Florida State University, and you had a mentor that really seemed to shape your the trajectory of your career, and this was Dr. Hum or Hume? Harold Hum, H-U-M-M. Harold Hum, yes. Right. So he managed to get a hold of some of the first ever scuba equipment and this and this kind of introduced you into the ocean world and you were able to dive and swim freely. How integral was it to have a mentor like Dr. Hum? It's great to have somebody who believes in you and opens doors. You hope your parents will, but to have someone who has no particular vested interest except that he sees some potential and encourages it. Good teachers do that. But the first time that I had a a chance to try scuba in 1953, (laughs) I had two words of instruction, breathe naturally, and then boom, (laughs) over the side. (laughs) It was before the the time when there were courses available Mm -hmm. to guide you and keep you on track to not only have a great experience, but to stay alive while doing it. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely one of the one of the beginning pioneers of scuba before even certifications, like you mentioned. 
and all of your time accumulated underwater really kind of landed you into some very unique positions going forward. Um, I wanted to chat a little bit about the your experience on the Anton Brune in 1964. Um, you were one of you were the only female with an all male crew. This is like 70 men, and <laughs> <laughs> and that made headlines. But what you were more concerned about, and what you found the bigger problems were was that it was hard to capture the essence of ocean life from the surface. Could you elaborate a little bit more about some of the problems that you faced there? The scientific team, there were 12 of us in that, aboard the research vessel Anton Brun, and huh, we were interviewed by a reporter in Mombasa, in Kenya, before we took off. He wanted to know what everything we were proposing to do. And I poured my heart out about all the things that we were hoping to see and explore. We were using scuba for the first time in many of those locations that we visited. Mm -hmm. The next day, the headline read, Sylvia sails away with 70 men, but she <laughs> expects no problems. But the problem we all faced, and it's what you uh, alluded to, is there you are on the surface, but the ocean is what is below. And we were using the traditional means of exploring the deep sea that are still being used today, dragging nets, lowering instruments, just hooks to catch things mm -hmm. without actually being in the ocean. Mm -hmm. But lucky us, we did have some of the first scuba apparatus available for such expeditions mm -hmm. and were able to be witnesses to live animals doing their own thing undisturbed. And what I found so exciting was we thought we were there to observe the fish and they were observing us. Mm -hmm. They were just as curious, it seemed, about primates in the ocean as primates in the ocean were about the fish. <laughs> that was a breakthrough for me. It was the beginning of a, just a different attitude about, about life in the ocean that so often we look at dead animals. We try to infer what's going on below by these tiny samples. We really need to take, use the ocean as the laboratory, take ourselves into the sea. I mean, I think about Jane Goodall. She didn't study chimpanzees by flying overhead in a helicopter and lowering a camera or dragging a net to catch a chimpanzee mm -hmm. and then drag it up to the surface, to her place in the sky to get to know its behavior. She spent 15 years initially actually living with them, mm -hmm. getting to know faces, personalities, behaviors, interactions. That's largely been missing with respect to our knowledge of the ocean, except for those who actually take themselves into the sea, living underwater or spending hours and hours going to back to the same places, getting to know individuals, but we're still limited by depth. Scuba divers can go, you know, 50 meters or so, but the deeper you go, the less time you have. Mm -hmm. And saturating is possible. I've saturated 
on 10 different occasions getting to spend days, um, sometimes a couple of weeks in continuously <laughs> underwater. But even so, it's not like sleeping in the sea. You're sleeping in a dry, warm, human-appropriate laboratory space underwater. But, it, you know, it, to actually imagine that you're a tuna mm -hmm. or, or a whale or a parrotfish, the more time you can spend in their realm looking at them alive, the greater your appreciation for realizing that this is home, the ocean is home for most of life on Earth. And moreover, most of life on Earth lives in the dark all of the time. All life on Earth lives in the dark some of the time. <laughs> but to think when you get below, oh, you know, usually about a, a thousand feet, 300 meters or so, mm -hmm. it's dark. Mm -hmm. Dark. <laughs> Except for the flash and sparkle and glow of bioluminescence that characterizes much of life in the sea. But sunlight is absent through most of the depths of the ocean. Average depth is two and a half miles, you know? It's it's four kilometers down. There, that's the average depth, and the maximum is 11 kilometers, seven miles down. About the same depth going down as the height going up is about the flight, the, the height that people fly in commercial aircraft when they're doing long flights. Right. But so few people have actually been to the deepest part of the ocean, even to the average depth of the ocean. We right. think of mostly places that we can get to and re we relate more to sunlit areas than we do to where most of the ocean actually exists, where most of life on Earth actually exists. Yeah, absolutely. So this is this is the grand the grand problem is actually being able to view it. You had a I think it was in your Blue Hope book, you had a metaphor of sweeping a net through New York City and what would we catch? Maybe a, a random pedestrian or a taxi cab <laughs> and and how would that, you know, how would that correlate and really tell the story of New York City, right? How do you tell the story of the culture and musicians and just everything that happens? So it's important highlights the importance of actually being there and getting into the water. Yeah, you know, I still don't understand what lawyers do, but, you know, <laughs> they're part of the culture. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no disparagement intended. <laughs> yes. So this kind of segues really nicely into, you have, most people think that the ocean is of two, as two-dimensional, right? Like we look out over just this blue expanse and it's gorgeous, right? It's been scientifically proven to uh, be good for us and bring bring some sort of um, healing. And and I think the term is blue mind, right? So, right. But, but really that's just that we're not really looking at much. What, what really the action is, is the three-dimensional landscape and what's going on beneath the sea. Could you chat a little bit more about that? Well, lucky us, the 21st century, we we now 
are beginning to just beginning to imagine the magnitude of our ignorance <laughs> and and the greatest era of discovery right. is is just beginning there's the illusion i think that most of what there is to be known somehow is known all those libraries all the databases you can google just about anything but i can think of a lot of things that nobody has yet to <laughs> to know because access to the greatest system on the planet is still in the beginning stages of understanding. Only about 15% perhaps of the ocean floor has been mapped. Mm. A far smaller percentage has been seen or sampled by, by us. Mm -hmm. And the water, I mean, what, what is the ocean? It's not the bottom. Right. It's not the top. I mean, those are parts of the ocean, but the ocean is mainly what's in between. Mm -hmm. It's it's that living system that has taken about four and a half billion years of give and take, of shaping planetary chemistry, governing climate and weather through currents that flow, through life in the ocean that shapes the nature of the living planet that makes Earth hospitable for us. It's where organisms in the sea generate oxygen that makes it possible for creatures on the land to to have developed and, and survive. I mean, even though we respect the green things on the land, trees, grass, ferns, all that to generate oxygen, capture carbon, the, the greatest source of carbon capture, the greatest source of generating oxygen remains ocean. Mm -hmm. And so we should, with every breath we take, thank you, ocean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> every drop of water we drink, 97% of Earth's water is ocean. Mm -hmm. And it goes up into the sky, falls back from the clouds as rain, sleet, and snow. And thank you, ocean, for the water cycle. Mm -hmm. Thank you, ocean, for my existence. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the point that, you know, the point to make when people in in landlocked areas are questioning, you know, why should I care about the ocean, right? Why should I care about a particular part of the ocean, like the coral reefs or the mangrove forests or even the deep ocean is that it, it all matters. You. Yeah, yes. exactly. It's our life support system. Astronauts know very well when they go high in the sky that without their life support system, that which generates the air they breathe, they need water to, <laughs> to keep them alive, food, all the rest. The pressure has to be just right. Mm -hmm. Their life support, they learn everything they can about their life support system. And then they do everything they can to take care of it. Mm -hmm. In Apollo 13, we got a snapshot view of of what happens when life support starts to fail here on the earth mm -hmm. our life support system is at risk because of what our actions what we're putting into the ocean what we're taking out of the ocean what we're putting into the atmosphere the loss of the diversity of life our life support system is in trouble mm -hmm. so we still haven't learned everything we need to know about how do we maintain it so that it's 
Earth's is a habitable place for us in a universe that's not very friendly when you think about it. Um, yeah, just try to set up housekeeping on the moon, <laughs> unless you have a life support system that you've carefully thought about and that you very carefully take take care of it. But we're not taking very good care of our living planet mm -hmm. that makes our existence possible. But we're beginning to shape, wise up and shape up. We have to hurry. Yes. Yes. Speaking of spending time in the, in the ocean and looking at the ocean floor, would you chat a little bit about your Tektite mission in 1970? You led up an all-woman team and you, you earned the, earned the role because you had already spent thousands of hours diving. What was it like living underwater for the first time? I know you mentioned and I've read that you have actually done it several times since. It was remarkable that the U.S. government was willing to support a program. Mm -hmm. Started out with the Department of Interior and the Navy and NASA joining forces with a combined interest in seeing if people could live and work effectively in isolation in anticipation of the space station and and other working in other so-called hostile environments mm -hmm. and living underwater was a counterpart to what astronauts might be experiencing in space if they by crafting a program that simulated space not having people be in direct contact just by voice or images that could be communicated so it was it was great there was a your program where four guys, all guys, spent two full months saturated, living underwater without personal contact with people on the surface. That led to enlisting 10 teams of scientists to live for 10 to, days to two weeks submerged with projects connecting real work while they were living underwater. Nobody bothered to say that only men need to apply. There were no men astronauts at that time, but heck, it's the ocean, you know? So some of us who were women scientists it did apply, and it caused great consternation among the management of the project because they hadn't expected women to submit applications. But some of us did, and um, as a consequence, they... They decided that it was okay, but they did not think it was okay to have men and women living together underwater. I submitted a project with four of my male colleagues, and the project was accepted, but I was not. Uh, as a part of the team, they said, would you be willing to lead an all-woman team? So that's how it came about, that with uh, four others, I had not previously met. <laughs> we, we put together a, a great uh, package of, I mean, my project stayed intact of looking at the behavior of fish grazing on on the marine plants, algae and seagrasses. Sea the others each had their own projects. So the guys were called aquanauts, scientists and engineers. We were called aqua babes. <laughs> aqua bells, aqua chicks, even aqua naughties. 
<laughs> but we actually didn't care so much about what we were called. They just, just for, to be able as scientists to use the ocean as a laboratory. And it was transformative for me because even though I had already experienced this, this breakthrough of having fish inspect me when I thought I was there to watch the fish, getting to know individuals, to see their faces, like Jane Goodall with her experience with primates under in forests, getting to see how things connect, the interactions, not just among individual kinds of fish, like parrotfish or grouper, but among all of the members of the community. It was fascinating to see that, that they make decisions. They're intelligent. They're not just lumps of meat swimming around waiting for us to take them <laughs> and use them for dinner. These, this is a fascinating web of life. And the more I've had the opportunities to explore and go deep and to spend time, the more I appreciate the complexities and the importance of treating the living ocean with the utmost respect and dignity. We're certainly not doing that. We're treating the ocean as a source of commodities, you know, extracting life, just looking at things as pieces of meat instead of looking at them as miracles with superpowers of vision, superpowers of sensory um, perception. When you think about what a tuna can actually do as it <laughs> cruises through the ocean at high speed with the ability to navigate over long distances, come back to the same places with no GPS system except what they have built in. There's so many things we have to learn about life. And we see it with how we've changed our attitude about birds that once we only valued as something to eat. And now we see them as miraculous creatures, again, with superpowers <laughs> of flight, of navigation, of finding food, of caring for their young, so many things can benefit us if we are really respectful mm -hmm. to do what scientists do, observe carefully, report honestly, and to share what we see. You know, that's, that's how civilization has progressed over, over all of our history. We learn things, we pass it along. We learn something else so that we discover that we've been wrong about something. Hallelujah. That means that we know better what the truth is. And it's, it's what makes us who we are. I mean, call it science if you will, but anybody can do this and everyone should do this to look and observe carefully and honestly the nature of the world around them and be happy when you discover that what you thought was true through something you'd heard or or that you'd read and then you find no now we know better than we did to keep learning to keep discovering to keep re thinking who we are where we've come from where we might be going 
It means science, scientists uh, should not and are not like a, a separate arm of civilization. <laughs> it's it's what a part of everyone. Everyone observes. Everyone analyzes what they see. You can call it science, or you can just call it being honest. Mm -hmm. But but that's basically <laughs> what a scientist does. You, right. you, you try to understand the world around you and honestly evaluate what you see. Right. It's it's uh, like we chatted a little bit about earlier. It's basic human nature. All children yeah, are it is. born with this. Explorers. Right? Yes. Yes. And we're not alone. I have seen puppies explore, kittens explore, birds. You want to know everything about everything when you're a kid. Mm -hmm. You should never stop. Mm -hmm. And keeping that natural curiosity and innocence. Right. And asking questions. So how do you know the sky is blue or, or why the sky is blue? You know, <laughs> a kid innocently will question what an adult says, how deep is the ocean? Well, it's 11 kilometers. How do you know that? <laughs> Are you sure? Can you show me the evidence? Right. And, and that's, <laughs> that's the joy of being alive, being inquisitive, being a human. Yes, I love this. Being alive, being a human, and also being a scientist, you have observed quite a lot in your lifetime how in the ocean, how have things changed since you started diving? I'm a witness. Yes. I, mean, I, I treasure my experience of having been lucky enough to come along at the time that I did mm -hmm. and to begin diving at the beginning of what geologists now refer to as the Anthropocene, mm -hmm. the time of such dramatic human impact on the natural world that the new geological age has been verified. Mm -hmm. Basically, our, our mark on the planet is, is written in stone. I, I, I comment on this in the, the latest book I've had an opportunity to to do with the National Geographic Ocean, a global odyssey during the global odyssey that we've all experienced 2020 <laughs> pandemic. I was able to just dive deeply into the history of what we know about the ocean and what I personally have experienced and to, and to articulate it in this 500 page monster with amazing <laughs> illustrations and maps, the latest maps, what we now know about the nature of the ocean's configuration and what we know about what's between the bottom and the top mm -hmm. and how the ocean relates to climate and weather. And, and as a witness to see this greatest era of discovery since 1950 mm -hmm. and the greatest era of loss. It's, it's amazing to be a, a, really a witness of this 
breathtaking time of change. Some of the changes, obviously, are just wonderful, amazing. Just the excitement about being able to go to the moon and mm -hmm. explore from the universe beyond and to go to the deepest parts of the ocean that, well, so far, as we know, <laughs> again, how deep is the ocean? The, the actual figures vary mm -hmm. um, much more so than how high is the highest mountain, mm -hmm. because most of the ocean has yet to be actually accessed with, with even instruments, let alone the human presence. So there's so much more that we need to know, but we do know we've got the evidence that the ocean is changing in ways not favorable to us. Mm -hmm. The chemistry, the acidification of the ocean caused by excess carbon dioxide, not just in the atmosphere, it is warming the planet and the ocean, as well as the terrestrial parts and the atmosphere above. But it becomes carbonic acid when an excess of carbon dioxide enters the ocean. We need some carbon dioxide for photosynthesis. That's how the process works. Carbon dioxide plus water yields food and, and oxygen is a byproduct. Mm -hmm. It's great that photosynthesis exists. So because of it, we exist, food exists. And, and Atmosphere with 20, about 20% 20 oxygen exists owing to photosynthesis. But we're now seeing vast areas of the ocean being depleted of oxygen. The, the changing chemistry, the, the dead zones that are formed because of excess fertilizer and, and other, quotes, nutrients that we allow to flow into the sea that causes an unusual bloom of certain kinds of, of, of algae that deplete the oxygen and cause these great die-offs. There are hundreds of places around the planet now that are suffering from low oxygen dead zones because of what we're putting into the ocean. And also what we're taking out of the ocean is having a profound impact mm -hmm. on the carbon cycle on the nutrient cycles in the ocean. We think of the ocean as a source of free goods, but there's a cost to what we take out. There's a cost to using the ocean as a dump site for the things that we don't want close to where we live. We throw them away in the ocean, except there is no away. Plastics are becoming to be a haunting reminder of the benefits of, of our technology, generating synthetic materials that, have, that are serving us very well. When you think about the many uses that we have for synthetic materials, the plastics that really are a part of our everyday lives from plastic bags and buttons to computer cases and shoes and clothing, you name it. <laughs> but the consequences of not really thinking it through. What do we do with these durable materials once we are there, once we're through with them, we throw them away, except the, the, the upside of plastics and then these other synthetic materials is that they are durable. The downside is 
they're durable. <laughs> that is, they persist. They persist so that fishing nets that were deployed in the 1960s with these wonderful new materials that last, that are relatively inexpensive as we account for costs, um, they're still there. Ghost nets, they continue to catch and, and tangle and kill organisms. And when these materials do eventually break down, they don't actually go away. They become microplastics and even nanoplastics, mm -hmm. little bits that are still plastic right down to the molecular level. And they're not natural, they're synthetic. Mm -hmm. And many of them not only have toxic materials, but they attract to toxic materials around them in the ocean and have become a real problem for wildlife in the sea and for us when we consume ocean wildlife because all of those chemicals that are attracted to the plastics are magnified in terms of their concentration. Mm -hmm. um, they call it bioaccumulation that and is up the food web, the larger, the further up the food web you go, the higher the concentration of the toxic materials and the micro and nanoplastics that have been ingested by these organisms and stay as a part of, of their systems. It's not good for them. It's certainly not good for us when we consume them. Even sea salt, <laughs> microplastics <laughs> are, you think of sea salt as being healthy. Mm -hmm. Well, 50 years ago, probably. Today, not so much. Mm. The amount of, of plastics is so great in the air we breathe, the water we drink. We are we've now changed the nature of nature right. through our not really understanding the consequences. Hey, but now we know the good news is we can or we have the power to act, the mm -hmm. superpower of knowing what we did not and could not know. 50 years ago, or even more. Right. We, we were learning so much so fast. Even 10 years ago, we didn't know what is now known. And that's the joy of science, <laughs> that we keep learning and we keep modifying our relationship with nature as we, as we come to understand our dependence on all of the rest of the living earth for our existence. Yes. I think it's something that I've been thinking a lot about is how disconnected we've become from nature. It, people, you know, kind of get on your screens and don't observe the world anymore. And I think it's vitally important, even as simple as going out in your backyard, if you're not by the ocean, but definitely getting in the water and just kind of feeling how it's all connected and how there's no, there's no separation. It's all right. integral. I used to think how much, how clearly we can see what we're doing to the ocean, how the ocean, how we're affecting the ocean through the large scale dumping, the, the trash that, and what we're taking out of the ocean, how that affect, but it, it took a while. And now it seems so obvious, but it took, I don't know why, but I, I suppose for civilization to understand 
how does the ocean affect us? Right. It's a two-way street, obviously, and we're all connected. But knowing, as we now do, where does air come from? The water that is in on the land, the lakes, the rivers, the stream, where does it come from? Its origin and its continued replenishment comes from the sea. When you see the world from an astronaut's perspective, it seems so obvious that clouds form over the ocean and deliver fresh water back to the land and the sea. Of course, clouds form over the land as well, but most of the surface of the earth is covered by ocean. So it's the primary source and delivery system for for the fresh water that we, we, we know we all need. But, but where does it come from? So how does the ocean affect you? You have a temperature range that is for, that is congenial, that's suitable for, for, for us during the current era of geological time. It's the ocean that transports, that captures and holds and transports heat and cold around the planet. The warm currents like the Gulf Stream that make Europe a warmer part of the planet than it otherwise would be. And the deep cold currents that originate in polar areas, the cold water that sinks in the Arctic and travels in, in deep water currents and the, the deep, highly nutritious water from Antarctica that, that is it's cold because cold water sinks mm -hmm. and it's filled with nutrients because of the enormous summertime blooms of, of phytoplankton, the power krill in a huge scale that nutrify the, the, well, like all living, all, all animals, they eat, but they also put nutrients back into the system. Mm -hmm. And the whales that eat the krill that, that are part of this nutrient cycle, they, they, they're part of the carbon cycle. And they, this deep cold water in Antarctica is transported throughout the whole planet. You go deep in the ocean, you get cold water, cold water. <laughs> and it's largely rich in nutrients that have accumulated there, but they upwell off like the coast of Peru, mm -hmm. off the coast of California, the places where we have these great fisheries, mm -hmm. great concentrations of fish. The, the current off South Africa, the Argulis, that is legendary for its populations of, of herring and and the, the small fish that that um, feed on the phytoplankton that is given a boost because of the nutrient rich, rich waters that upwell right. that i mean it all connects right. and and we couldn't could not see or understand the the completeness i mean we're still getting information about how these currents interact and how the nutrients interact. But what we do know for sure is that it's not just rocks and water. It's the <laughs> living ocean, the, the 
drives the carbon cycle, that drives the oxygen cycle, that makes Earth habitable. And most of that action is ocean action. So how does the ocean affect you? <laughs> You're alive. You exist because the living ocean exists. So thank you, ocean. I'll do my best to take care of you because I, <laughs> I value my existence. Yes. When we're talking about currents, uh, one of the best ways, most memorable ways I've heard hurricanes explained is it's just the tropics and the ocean just trying to get rid of some extra heat. And I think I thought that was a really a simple way of explaining how the currents in the ocean kind of work coming down from the cold and going along the tropics, warming back up. And then you have a nice current. I'm in Florida. So on the Eastern or yeah, on the Eastern boundary of Florida, we have the Gulf stream and, right. and so that current carries all the warm water up North, which makes up North more temperate and not freezing cold and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, the hurt, but if it gets too hot in the tropics, that's the ocean's response is to try to get rid of some of the extra heat. Well, even in the tropics, if you get below, well, the deeper you go, the cooler it gets, unless you mm -hmm. land on a volcano underwater. <laughs> <laughs> Which can happen. It can happen. Hydrothermal <laughs> vents, there are more yeah. far more, many more volcanoes underwater than, than on the land. And many of the islands, like the islands of Hawaii, mm -hmm. uh, the oceanic islands generally form as a consequence. They're, they're volcanic, mm -hmm. and they're the peaks of volcanoes. <laughs> I I was in the Azores Islands out in the Atlantic just a couple of weeks ago, and ha, huh, so the I was on the middle, the top of a mountain chain that is mostly submerged, <laughs> but we did not know of its existence until relatively recently in human <laughs> human terms mm -hmm. the, the last the, the last two centuries have truly been the greatest era of exploration and discovery in the history of humankind right. and i think it's safe to say the last half century has been by itself the greatest time of exploration and discovery in all of human history and that is accelerating so kids listen up <laughs> anybody listening because anybody can do this this is the time when you can be the agent of discovery you can see things find things we have a, a, as never before the the what the springboard to the greatest discoveries ever we we know enough to know how much we don't know, but we also have the connections, the computer technology that enables us to, to to connect the dots, to see patterns, to lead us, to ask questions that are more meaningful, to see things that we couldn't see before because we don't have the computing power individually, but now collectively with data being gathered and shared instantly over the whole planet, we have the ability to really accelerate an understanding mm -hmm. of who we are, where we've come from, where we might be going, and, and how do we get from where we are to a better place. Anybody, everyone has the capacity to add 
meaningfully to this great adventure of discovery. I look at stuff that's growing in the cracks in a sidewalk in a city. There are mysteries there that we can figure out. How, do, <laughs> how does the moss find its place? What nutrients does it take to, to, to make it grow? You look, how do dandelions get around and, and what are the processes that make their, their prosperity possible in your lawn? <laughs> there, there's a, I mean, the, the bark of a tree, if you think like an ant, is, is great rough terrain to be, to be scaled and, and understood. And so there are just miracles everywhere. And, and we're, when do you think how other creatures see the world or live in their, in their realm? They're basically indifferent to us. They're innocent of our aspirations, our dreams and schemes, <laughs> and hopes and dreams. They are doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. For us to respect what they're doing and understand what they cannot, maybe, maybe fish wonder where they came from. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Dogs, cats, elephants certainly show evidence of imagination, our fellow primates. But, you know, we're all connected one way or the other. Right. And we should, we should value the superpowers that other organisms have, like what a bee can see, what a fish can see, what a, there's a, a shrimp-like creature called a stomatopod, a mantis shrimp, mm -hmm. that with their extraordinary eyes can see infrared and they can, they can see a, a range of color and that, that we, can, we can't even imagine. They, 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 their eyes can operate independently. Well, a number of organs, chameleons can do that too. <laughs> but but it's, it's just, we need to respect life on earth as a library mm -hmm. of infinite new discoveries. And instead of just treating trees as board feet of lumber, or looking at a fish is just something to eat. We, we just need to pull back and be respectful. Of, of course, we have to eat something, and people <laughs> will eat fish, but to treat them just as if they are lumps of senseless <laughs> meat is, is really demeaning to our potential. Yeah, we, we're better than that. We, we, sh we should respect all of life and be curious, as curious as we were when we were three years old and <laughs> never lose that, that sense of wonder. Yes. I really, I love this message a lot. And I like how you were saying earlier, you know, any, anyone can do this. We have this amazing superpower of technology that can help us connect these dots and be that voice or that observer, right? Yes, um, everyone should. Yeah. No matter who you or what you do, <laughs> should be part of your the joy of living. To be yeah. an explorer, to be to ask those questions, 
and I mean, science, the way it's perceived, does require a certain discipline, mm-hmm. but it's not hard. Right. It isn't. You, <laughs> you are honest, and you ask questions, and you're not satisfied with, with simplistic answers. You keep wanting to know, and you keep finding trusted sources. You don't just take stuff that you hear as as a given. You say, mm-hmm. mm, "I wonder how, I wonder how they know that," right. uh, and, and you and you start asking. <laughs> So until you're satisfied that you've got the straight answer to your straight questions, whatever they are. <laughs> yes. So and if nobody this- knows, why don't you find out for yourself? You know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing you can. You don't have to go to the library and check out 500 books to figure it out. You've got the web at your fingertips. That's right. And even there, you have to have to be careful and trust the source. Oh yes. And good point. But it's a great starting place. But there's a lot of miss and disinformation on the web of those who are who are not observing carefully and reporting honestly they're uh, it's treacherous (laughs) but you have the superpower of asking questions and verifying the source and going that that's the joy of being a human being we've got that superpower of being able to know what even the smartest elephants cannot know. <laughs> so speaking of superpowers, you were the one of one of the things that about your career that really struck me was that you were the chief scientist of NOAA in the early 90s, 92, 90 to 92. And that seems on paper like the role to affect the most change, right? And you kind of found out that it wasn't, and that's more or less why you left, um, and you earned a lovely title called the Sturgeon General while you were there. Could you explain a little bit about how, why that was so, and how much more powerful you you found your voice as a citizen? Well, society needs rules and regulations right. <laughs> in order to keep the peace, if you will. If you have a small group of people you can usually figure things out and get along. But when you get to um, the size of that we have today, there are rules and regulations, guidelines, and and it, it's important. We, we have laws, for heaven's sakes. Um, right. But the world changes, and sometimes the laws do not. Mm-hmm. And I found it, still find it frustrating that with the ocean, we still have in place laws about fishing, for example, that were formed when the world was different from it is today, but the laws are still the same. Mm-hmm. It, it suggests that there's a large amount of ocean wildlife that we can extract on a regular basis mm-hmm. and that it will stay producing, even though the evidence shows that since the 1950s, many of the creatures that we extract from the sea have declined by 90% or more. You know, the sharks are basically disappearing. Mm-hmm. The makos, some of them are, are, are down to half of 1%. Mm-hmm. The 
oceanic white tip, tuna, for heaven's sakes, bluefin tuna, going back to the 1950s, if you use that as a starting point, has declined across the board by at least 90% in the Pacific by 97%, according to the most recent calculations. And we're still taking them legally. And I find that on one hand, the, the discipline of having guidelines, regulations, we need that, of course, but we need to also respect and modify as we learn new things. Mm-hmm. We and, and the value of tuna for more than just tuna for sale, tuna to eat. They're carbon-based units. They're critical to the carbon cycle distribution of nutrients. They have miraculous features, a library of knowledge that we can discover if we keep them alive. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's, it's the constraints that I felt and do feel that we impose on ourselves. Um, it's, it's, we have to balance the, um, the, the, the reality that the world is changing. We must be prepared to, you know, hold society together with our customs, our laws, our habits. Um, but there's certain elements where when you, when you realize the world needs a different policy, we, we now need to um, change our ways with respect to burning fossil fuels, for example. Mm-hmm. We're locked into an economic system that is dependent on burning fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. It's curious, isn't it? That our society has prospered as well as it has, and we should thank fossil fuels for getting <laughs> us high in the sky, deep in the sea, to develop this infrastructure, better health, better communication, better food, you know, you name it. But now we can see the cost and we have to change if we are to continue to enjoy the prosperity that burning fossil fuels has given us. Mm-hmm. Now we know that's the basis of science right. that anybody can do, everybody must do, realize the, the <laughs> and understand the, the, what's happening. So that at NOAA mm-hmm. a, a, was a great learning experience for me. I could not imagine from the outside what it's like to be a government official. <laughs> really, I couldn't. I mean, I tried, but I could not until I was sitting behind the desk and realizing the the power that government has over the people under who are within a certain government. It just, I, I could try to imagine it, but I, living it was extremely important to me. And, mm. and of course, I don't have the same perception that someone who develops, devotes a lifetime of government service, but I, I respect it and I, I have a better feel for it now. Mm-hmm. And, and the same is true working with industry and starting companies. Mm-hmm. How do you balance the books when you're starting a little company to build submarines? <laughs> yes, because <laughs> those I, are not cheap. <laughs> no, or just to realize that we're humans and we make the rules. And we also have to understand that sometimes you have to change the rules. 
-hmm. when we the more we know the better prepared we are for the future you know we we no longer burn witches at stakes we we know better we think we still <laughs> we're still burdened with some crazy ideas that we 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 need to evaluate where the ideas come from such as the ocean is still the best place to dump things now we know it's not but but we have to now that we know better we need to do better right we used to think that the ocean was infinite in its capacity to yield whatever we want to take now we know it's not we are having a profound impact on life in the sea and therefore on the chemistry on on the nature of our life support system mm -hmm. so we have to change our ways we have to if we are to survive mm -hmm. but the, the pace of change is not keeping uh, our behavioral change is not yet keeping pace mm -hmm. with the, with the, the reality of the change in circumstances of our life support system so with a greatest sense of urgency i'm doing everything i can to get people to be aware of what's going on and to make better choices about how they as individuals can make a difference everybody does by either what they choose to do or what they choose not to do right so it's it's all up to the now nearly 8 billion humans <laughs> to determine not only our fate but but um what's the world going to be like in another 50 or 100 or 1000 years so what is what is something that everyone can do every day to help our oceans well look in the mirror number <laughs> one <laughs> ask what you care about who are you what, what do you do what do you what is your power mm -hmm. uh, your superpower if you will uh, are you have a way with words a way with art a way with music with numbers with people whatever it is that you're doing that you love turn it to make a difference mm -hmm. do you have a way with kids it, anyone I, I say this if you have a child take them to some wild place look at the future through their eyes and and ask them basically what does the world they want to grow up in and if you don't have a child of your own borrow one <laughs> but but really think about think about the way world you want in the next 10 years mm -hmm. because the choices you make about what to eat what to wear of how you spend your days and nights matter one times 10 times 100 or a thousand were that's the individual choices we all make count and if you do nothing that's a choice you're adding to the negative side of human prosperity if you do something to make a difference in a positive way you're carrying the weight for those who are not so go for it be a hero your personal hero you don't have to make headlines you just have to be able to look in yourself and say yes i've done something that makes the world a better place today and i'll do it again tomorrow mm -hmm. and it all adds up we just need this 
tsunami of human will to turn from the decline that we're experiencing presently to making peace with the natural systems that make us make make our existence our civilization everything we care about art music our families <laughs> to make it all possible right absolutely so in 2009 you were awarded the 10 million dollar prize and you gave the talk of your lifetime as the ted talks are about mission blue and it's truly inspiring um since 2000 well and at that point less than one percent of the oceans were protected um since then i just read mission blues annual report from 2019 and we're up to about 10 percent of the ocean protected in like 120 some odd or almost 130 hope spots throughout the world. Um, and the goal is 30% by 30. So how, how are we doing? <laughs> well, many organizations are working together to work with governments, to work with communities, to work with people around the world. Mm -hmm. and Mission Blue is has taken the approach of uh, identifying champions who have recognized a place in the ocean that they care about, they're willing to work with their locally as well as with their government and with with others around the world to go from wherever we are to get to a better place, ideally with full protection for this network of hope. Mm -hmm. But it, it takes people willing to commit. And mm -hmm. so with Mission Blue, we we have these champions <laughs> who work at, uh, locally, but also connect globally, and gathering information, data, images that can be shared, stories that can be shared, success stories, and problems. Um, right now, globally, again with many organizations, National Geographic has a project called Pristine Seas. Um, the Marine Conservation Institute, another approach to looking at how do we inspire protection for areas in the sea, World Wildlife Fund, Nature Conservancy, you know, all these organizations and countries that are stepping up to enhance not just protection within their own coastal waters, but the high seas, half of the world, we must come together to protect the area that is a global commons where we, it's the, like the Wild West mm -hmm. with subsidized industrial fleets. We must stop that fishing and we must not mine the deep sea until, or maybe never, <laughs> destroy these ancient systems that are holding the planet steady. So, you know, Mission Blue tries to be, and I think succeeds in being an ambassador, a voice for the ocean of many ambassadors, champions who are speaking out to not only convey knowledge, the best that we currently have, but to encourage people to go and see for themselves, no child left dry. <laughs> go dive in <laughs> and be an observer and connect with the rest of the world what, with what you see and what you care about. Yes. So I was on Mission Blue's website and there's hope spots, I mean, all over. Uh, and there's actually one in South Florida, but 
we don't, besides the keys, we don't really have any truly protected areas. So the hope spot is like the beginning designation, just starting to put a dot in that this area is special because it has, you know, we have sea turtles that nest here. We have manta rays, yes. that maybe a nursing ground for us. So that's like the beginning, right? And then if you, and then it you takes a champion up. to kind of yep. step up and make that actually a protected spot. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. And it's, encouraging because as you point out less than one percent fraction of one percent was highly or fully protected when i served as chief scientist of noaa in 1990 but mm-hmm. president george w bush actually took action mm-hmm. um to establish the largest marine protected area in the world mm-hmm. with the Papahanaumokuakea Kea Marine Reserve in Hawaii. And then Obama quadrupled the size of that. Mm-hmm. And on around the world, Chile has established about 40% of their exclusive economic zone. The European Union is working together to try to correct some of their bad behavior in, this, <laughs> in the ocean. Anyway, overall, about 3% of the ocean now is highly or fully protected. Okay. Close to 10% is has some form of protection. Gotcha. We're, we're really trying to get and seize the moment of new awareness, new urgency, new need for us to protect the ocean, mm-hmm. highly, fully protected by 2030, mm-hmm. 30%. And that, that's the high seas, at right. least 30% of the high seas, as well as, as in, in the coastal waters of countries out 200 miles. I but, love that that's considered coastal that's, waters. So the, the yeah, exclusive but, economic zones, we should say really yeah. quickly, are is yeah. extending from the country out 200 miles offshore. And so the, the countries around the world can claim that as part of their territory and can manage Correct. it as they see fit. The, the United States is actually more than twice as big as what most people think of it. <laughs> and little island countries like Palau, um, you know, maybe a hundred times. Costa, <laughs> Costa Rica is 10 times as large right. when you take into account it's aquatic real estate. So the trick is getting not only managing, you know, making these rules and laws internationally on waters that technically nobody has outside of this 200 mile boundary, but also right. how do you regulate that? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you monitor that? I guess is the better question. You start by declaring it, establishing it, making it official. Yes. In the early days of national parks, it was hard for Teddy Roosevelt and others to get people to stop poaching, Mm -hmm. stop cutting the trees in national parks. I mean, who cared? Mm -hmm. And who was going to stop them? We have the same issue in the high seas Mm -hmm. and in coastal waters. We have laws, we have regulations, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of illegal, unregulated and unreported extraction of wildlife from the ocean right but quite frankly the biggest problem is the legal fishing that Hmm. takes place in 97 percent of the ocean Hmm. so the starting point is to get people to understand why it matters Mm -hmm. to to really cut off the incentive Mm -hmm. for them by making them understand that their lives are on the line Mm -hmm. as well as everybody else it's not just about the value of what you can sell, of what you take out of the ocean, you're having an impact on the air you breathe. Right. You're having an impact on the planet that keeps you alive. 
If, if people really understand the importance of protection, protecting national forests, creating that, that sense of dignity, the ethic of caring, you almost don't need the laws. Mm -hmm. it's, we're a long way from getting there, but it's possible. You do see people who, when they hear that the Florida Keys are designated as a marine sanctuary, they think they should behave themselves there, <laughs> <laughs> even though it's legal to kill the fish and the lobsters and to otherwise not respect the ocean life that makes mm. that place flourish, makes us flourish. It's legal to have bad behavior <laughs> with respect to the ocean. And we have to address that anyway, every way we can. Right. right. I forget which book it was, but you had, you were having dinner with President Bush and you were talking about marine sanctuaries and the need to actually make them close to fishing. And he was blown away that sanctuaries meant you could still fish. And that's why the, right. the monument, the Hawaii monument was actually created as a monument to make that distinction of it's actually really protected. Right. President Bush actually said, why do they call them sanctuaries if you can fish there? <laughs> I mean, it's a good point. <laughs> very good point. We should treat them really as, I don't know, sacred places. Right. So it's, and, it starts with us. And knowing what we're eating or not eating, right? And and then inspiring the, the law because law changes with the will of the people, ideally. Right. And, and question everything all the time. Mm -hmm. Try to make the world a better place. Try to get at the heart of the reality of the nature of the world. Mm -hmm. And have the joy of being an explorer yourself. Yes. Love this. So just a few more things as we kind of wrap up here. And you have a new book coming out. What can we expect in your new book? And when is it going to be released? It'll be coming out in November. Okay. It is National Geographic Ocean, mm -hmm. a global odyssey, mm -hmm. where we take, take you on a journey, <laughs> starting with here is the ocean, the history uh, what do we know about its origin? What do we know about life in the ocean? And that there's a beautiful foldout that I think will be a shock to a lot of people to realize the diversity of life in the sea. Mm. When people tend to think of, oh yeah, fish and whales and maybe shrimp and lobsters and starfish, but the greatest diversity of life on earth is out there in the ocean, more than 30 major categories of life, only about 15, only about half of them occur of all of the land put together. But in a coral reef or in a kelp forest, you can find 15 categories of life easily, of animal life easily. <laughs> and there are all those others that occur only in the ocean. So we celebrate that. But then about the, the, the latter part of the, of the book is really addressing the what is this, the problems we're now facing, the ocean and climate, mm -hmm. the, the human impact on the ocean and the ocean's impact on humans. Mm -hmm. So it's, I hope, an adventure. <laughs> that it's written in such a way that, unlike a novel where you there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, these are crafted so that you can pick it up and read a section, 
500 words or a thousand words or a nice juicy 3000 word bite <laughs> with amazing images and maps in a great national geographic <laughs> typical way the okay. best maps you can imagine as a as a, a part in the back of the book so you can travel the world underwater mm. it sounds incredible uh is this available for pre-order now <laughs> Yes, indeed. Thank you for suggesting that. You can <laughs> sign up. So as soon as it's hot off the press, um, it could be yours. Okay, wonderful. I'll put a link to the pre-order site in the show notes for listeners as well. So we've talked a lot about the oceans and kind of what we can do to help. Do you? Ha- I like to leave each episode with a conservation ask. And like I said, we've talked a lot about what listeners can do. Do you have a very specific ask or conservation topic that you like to tell people to go forth and do? Yeah, do something. <laughs> Fair enough. Check out Mission Blue and see if there's a way within the umbrella of options there that you can dive in. But the first most important thing is really to look in the mirror, ask yourself, where can I have impact? Yeah. We only get a certain amount of time to have our mark on the planet. The planet always has a mark on us, but what can we do individually? And, and, and how can you magnify your impact by, by what you do to inspire others? That's what will bring about change. We need to embrace as much of the natural world as possible, land and sea, with respect and care, and the rest will follow. Yes. Two more questions that are my my favorites to ask on the show. If you were to get a blank check, an unlimited amount of money for research, what would you use it for? Top and I had somebody that was like, I have to pick one project. So if you have three projects in mind, we'll do top three. But what would you use it for? <laughs> <laughs> Explore the ocean. Yes. Go deep. Go, Go deep. deep. <laughs> and, sh- and share the view. Uh, that's <clears throat> one of the biggest gaps currently in our understanding and appreciation for how do we maintain a planet that works in our favor. Yes. So, okay, unlimited funding. You want to explore the ocean and go deep. Do you have a particular spot, location, length of time that you would want to go go in the ocean for or something to study? I think a high priority has to be the deep scattering layer, so-called, this layer of life that exists in the twilight zone of the ocean where the sunlit waters meet eternal darkness and creatures from the deep sea migrate vertically into the sunlit portions, but they come at night Mm -hmm. when they're safe under the cover of darkness, if you will. Mm -hmm. And they gobble up the results of photosynthesis and the action in that productive sunlit portion. Then they sink back by day into the deep. This layer of life is critical for migrating animals in the high seas or even in coastal waters 
the the tunas, the turtles, the sharks, the <laughs> whatever it is. How how do they get their groceries from the surface? <laughs> it, it looks you look at a place like Bermuda, the waters around there, or the Sargasso Sea. Allegedly, they're 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 not very productive. But if you go deep, you'll see that there is this layer of life, and it's it's now being exploited mm. by a number of countries gearing up with with fine mesh nets. Mm. Uh, several Asian countries, Norway, others, see this as a source that is unex underexploited is mm. the term, mm. and they they are trying to gather this grand mix of small fish with these amazing properties of bioluminescence and sensory and crustaceans, tiny little copepods and krill and squid and you know you name it, this this cross section of life. I mean at least fifteen categories of life are in this and probably likely more anyway, just to grind them up for to feed to cows and chickens and pigs and mm. farmed fish, to fish protein or meal, just mm. a mush of these creatures that are miracles to sell for mm. fertilizer or, or whatever products. We, we have to do better than this mm -hmm. by getting people to understand the importance of, the, of these migrating animals in the deep sea. We might have a chance to stabilize the carbon cycle and and prevent this this terrible destruction or deep sea mining. I want to go really deep to the deepest parts of the ocean. Mm -hmm. I want to get people to understand that this matters to your existence. I, I, I urgently want to bring to light for us. I mean, to light, I mean, just... <laughs> sunlight, but I mean, the, the understanding the nature of the deep sea, the manganese nodules that are living. They're not dead rocks, dead stones. They are living like a coral reef is alive. Mm -hmm. that, that look, they look dead like branches of something <laughs> that isn't alive. We used to wonder whether their corals were alive or not, but now we know mm -hmm. these manganese nodules are formed by bacteria. They grow very slowly. You can kill them by grinding them up and turning them into their component metals and, and throw away much of the basic structure. Or we can respect them. But people have to know in order to care. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are currently. Yes. Uh, and, and if I had unlimited resources, or even not with, even with limited resources, we still have to do everything we can right. to protect these systems from destruction because they keep us alive. Right. And it's, it's a really good point. And instead of going in and destroying, which has kind of been our humans way of doing things forever, um, destroying what we don't know. Now we have the know-how and the capacity and uh, the lesson to study it beforehand to see how we may impact it. Correct. It's the best time ever to be alive. Yeah. I mean, it's the sweet spot in time, yeah. truly. But yes. we will be that generation 
here early in the 21st century that either secures an enduring place for civilization, for humans, for all we care about, or we will be that generation that, that despite our power of knowing and caring and restoring, <laughs> we perversely kept doing what we've always done to consume the natural systems as if they're infinite in their power to recover, right. even though we know they're not. Right. It's a lot. <laughs> so one of my very, very favorite questions to ask is, what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And with thousands of hours underwater, I know you have a lot to choose from. Is there one or two oh. that kind of pop in your head though? That's such an easy question. It's okay. always the it's always the next one. <laughs> <laughs> always the next one. <laughs> Not swimming with humpback That's whales true. or watching coral never spawning. <laughs> oh, you never know. It's always <laughs> the past is always prelude. Yeah. And every every time is gets better because of what you've done before. All right. Great answer. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or how to help the oceans, where's the best place to do that? Mission Blue website? Yes, National Geographic has the scoop as well. Okay. Um, Ocean Elders is another source. Yes. But um, <laughs> it's hard to hide these days. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Yes, it is. Wonderful. I'll put a link to all of these places in the show notes, as well as a link to your upcoming book in November. Congratulations. Another book, baby. Um, I just also released this year the 25th anniversary edition of Sea Change oh. that, with an update. It's published by Texas A&M University Press. And I love it because Sea Change was my first real book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Released I, in 1995? That's correct. All right. So it's out there as a, a perspective on, imagine the magnitude of change in 25 years. Right. Huh. It's a different world. Yeah. Truly the, next, the next 25 will be the most remarkable, even the next 10 in likely in the history of humankind because of the choices we make, what we do or what we fail to do. Mm -hmm. But there's no doubt that it's going to be an incredible ride. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Sylvia, thank you so much for making time and being on the podcast today. I really, really enjoyed chatting with you. Likewise. So thank you for all you're doing to inspire people and Spread the word. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there.
Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.